I hope you've noticed that as I've been putting together these, um, these orders of worship, uh, I've been trying to connect us to the book of Hebrews because I don't want us to feel like we're ping-ponging back and forth between Psalms and uh, the New Testament book of Hebrews. I want it to feel a little bit kind of like a supplemental series because they are definitely not only related, but they are closely related. Let's turn to Psalm 51 in our Bibles. And I'm going to read it for us. This is God's word. And then we'll pray and begin. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Father, we we often uh, use the word repent or repentance. And sometimes we even catch ourselves uh, throwing it around willy-nilly. But Lord, it's it's an important, vital aspect of not only the gospel, but of the Christian life. And so Lord, help us to understand this beautiful, majestic, um, heartfelt psalm in the middle of the Bible written by King David so that we might make it our own. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Last time, which was two weeks ago, uh, we explored Psalm 50, if you remember, uh, in which God summons us, his people, about our worship. 
Of course, the proper response when God uh, confronts you um, with your sin is repentance. And we looked briefly at that repentance and what that might look like. But only briefly. Psalm 51 is placed right after Psalm 50, after that summons, so we can get a much closer look at what godly repentance looks like. Let me explain how the thought process of repentance uh, has worked on me and perhaps what David might have thought while wrestling with his pen and wrestling with his heart, Psalm 51, out onto the page. And I want to explain this because you're human too. And I suspect that you will relate. And it goes something like this. My sin is very great in the sight of a holy God. And it's easier for me to imagine that God could forgive the common kind of smaller sins But somehow that formulaic arrangement of confession and repentance and forgiveness and restoration, it breaks down in my mind when I really, really, really blow it. When my sin is so destructive and so defiant, when my victims stop talking to me because I've hurt them so bad, I have a hard time imagining how God could forgive me. I know it's my fault, and I admit I deserve everything I get, I can hardly live with myself. But still, I desperately need mercy, most of all from God. Here's my fundamental problem. How can God be just and merciful at the same time? Do you ever wrestle this way? Probably not for those, those small kind of common sins, and I don't mean to discount those and say they don't count, not at all. But I'm talking about when you really blow it. Do you wrestle with yourself like that, with others, with God? When Nathan the prophet went to the king after David went into Bathsheba, this is the superscription, the the part that comes before the the psalm proper that I read just a moment ago, went into Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Uh, That's the background here, and you can read about it in Psalm, I'm not Psalm, but 2 Samuel 11 and 12. We can summarize that. It's a whole different sermon of what happened by saying that David wasn't doing his job, his job as the king. Uh, His eyes and his heart lusted after the wife of one of his most trusted, loyal, competent soldiers, and they slept together, and she became pregnant, and then he tried to cover it up, but when that plan didn't work, he arranged to have her husband killed, and then he married her, and then it seemed like all was under the bridge, But then God sent a prophet to preach, accuse, and pronounce sentence. The baby is going to die. Thou art the man. But then, lo and behold, David actually repented. And we might go, oh yeah, I know that story, but how many times do we read in Samuel and in Kings when a prophet went to to the leader of God's people and confronted him with with his sin and they didn't repent? This right here is one of the most amazing stories ever told of sin and redemption. What it teaches us is that when God confronts and convicts you of sin, we ought to turn away from it with a broken and contrite heart and humbly approach him, crying out to God for the blessings that are associated with repentance and vowing to bear the fruit of repentance. And that we should use Psalm 51 as an example, an ideal example of such biblical penitential prayer. 
just like Psalm 50, Psalm 51 is, is kind of like the perfect sermon outline. It, was, it, was, it just kind of came to me on Tuesday, the first day that I really started looking at it closely. And it's divided into three sections, which are conveniently three points. And these are our points this morning. The approach of godly repentance, the cries of godly repentance, and the fruit of godly repentance. I'll repeat them for you again. The approach of godly repentance, the cries, and the fruit. Let's look first at the uh, first six verses for how we are to approach God with repentance. Well, David jumps right into the deep end of the pool. Oh God, I need your mercy and forgiveness. I need to be washed, verse 2. Help me according to your steadfast covenant love. The first thing you have to do when you approach God is just let him know what you're there for. Ask God to forgive and cleanse you. Now, it seems simple enough, but sensitive souls will feel intimately that you can't just kind of say a few prayers and offer a few sacrifices and issue an apology for sin to go away. All kids know that when they really blow it and their parents catch them, that you need more than that, right? There's no prescribed way, I found, um, which was a shocker for me. I don't know why I've never seen it before when I considered the Old Testament sacrificial system. You you read about in Leviticus 1 through 7. There's no prescribed sacrifice to cover premeditated and defiant sins. If there was, people would be going around and saying, oh, I killed, I stole, I committed adultery. Oh, just just go get a, a, a good animal out of your backyard and take it to the priest, and he'll take care of it for you. Well, we're tempted to believe that, and the Old Testament people of God were too. Jeremiah, in chapter 7, he issues a stern rebuke to folks who, who think that that's all that God wants. The Levitical sacrifices were only ordained to atone for unintentional sin and failure to perform certain duties. You'll want to check up on that or ask me afterward, because that was a shocker for me. God despises it when people treat morality and religious works as something like sinsurance, if you know what I mean. Especially when they plan out such a deal with God beforehand, before actually going and committing the sin. You ever caught yourself doing that, or somebody um, that you know saying, well, I can always ask for forgiveness afterwards, so I'm just going to do it. God despises that. So David knew that he was in big, big trouble. Not only because he knew the law, but because he knew the character of God. The only available outcomes for David at this point are either divine justice, which none of us want, or divine mercy. It's the same for you and me. How can you get his mercy and get right with God? Well, verses 3 through 6 tell us that we need to acknowledge to God your awakening conscience. In other words, it's not just a matter of saying, I'm sorry. The first step is pleading for mercy. Yes, you tell God what you want as you come into his presence. But not only do you have to ask, but you also have to see the gravity of what you've done. And this, like I said, requires an awakening conscience. Not only should you acknowledge to God what is happening inside you, but you should also give credit to God that that grace of conviction that you're experiencing um, in in your heart is his spiritual heart surgery on you. Oh, God. I see clearly now my sin and my deserved punishment. This is verses 3 and 4. I see clearly now that I'm a born sinner, and you want, me to, you want to teach me inner wisdom. 
you're doing this to me, giving this, this conviction so that I won't stay in my sin, so that I won't be blind to it, so I'll recognize that I indeed am born in sin and this is me just being myself and I need your help and I see it. And then there's verse four. And we, we can't move on from David's cries or to David's cries before we address verse four because it comes off kind of as dismissive of those who are hurt by our sins. It sounds tone deaf. Did, did that kind of seem to you? Against you and you only have I sinned and dealt when is evil in your sight? Tone deaf? It sounds like it at first, but it's not. Now, let, me, let me try to explain. Well, tone deaf. How do you put yourself in, in, um, in the situation uh, a thousand years ago? Okay? All that was happening with David and Bathsheba and Uriah. How would Bathsheba have felt? I mean, David seduced her, slept with her, and then was the cause of her baby dying and was the one who arranged for her husband's murder? Was she sinned against? How about Uriah's family? Faithfully serving the king. And then the one who's, the one who's supposed to uh, hold up justice uses his power for injustice. How about uh, God's people? The ones who are serving under David. The one who they look up to as the one who is, who is God's representative. Now oppressing them. How about Joab? Joab was, was uh, the, the commander of David's army. And now he's being compelled to be an accomplice to murder of one of his, his, his most loyal, like I said, trusted and, and fierce warriors. Does it feel weird to say that David prayed against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Well, it can feel weird, but here's what I think is going on. When the Bible deals with our sin, it generally goes straight to the heart, straight to the heart of the matter. We can say that, that David, in a sense, sinned only against God in the same way that we can say that God is the owner of all things. Is God the owner of a cattle on a thousand hills? Yes. Is he the owner of, of every single person in the room, every single person who's ever been created? Yes. Is he the one who set in the social order and the laws and everything that is in place to be able to govern his people according to righteousness? Yes. So it is true that we can sin against ourselves and we can sin against others, but all sins can be traced ultimately back to God. And that's how I think that we can kind of unravel this, this uh, difficult conundrum, at least in the way that it hears to, sounds to our ears, this verse 4. This is important, by the way, because if you see this, then you recognize that you, that you have an awakened conscience that you need more and more. And what that does is it gives you a new level of humility. This is, our, in a sense, our first level of application because we can't go to God just saying we're sorry without saying, God, I know what I see, and it's bad. <laughs> I know I don't just have to you know, cross a few T's and dot a few I's and, and make a few prayers and, and offer a few sacrifices, and it's all going to work out. An awakening conscience is the one that comes to God and says, I know that I've sinned, I know it's bad, and I know that I'm bad, and I need your help. Kind of like how the thief on the cross prayed. Remember how at first he was uh, jostling with Jesus, with the other, uh, the other thief. You know, Save yourself. Why can't you do that? And then he had what? A change of heart. He was awakened. And he turned to Jesus and he said, you don't deserve this. We deserve to be 
uh, crucified for our sins, but this man right here has done nothing wrong to deserve this. And then he said, what? Jesus, remember me when you come into your Father's kingdom. I love those words, don't you? <laughs> They're comforting. They show us that even at the last moment, when, when we're crying out for perhaps our last breath, save me, Jesus, with an awakened conscience, and we'll be walking in paradise with Jesus in a few moments. That brings us to the cries of godly repentance. They kind of go back and forth, by the way, verses 7 through 12. Uh, on one hand, we have verses 7, 9, and 11. Oh God, please don't reject me. And on the other hand, verses 8, 10, and 12. Oh God, please restore me. Please don't reject me. Please restore me. David goes back and forth. And I think we need to pay careful attention to all six of these verses. So let's look at, on the one hand first, oh God, please don't reject me. Verse 7, look at what David says. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. What's David talking about? Is it, is it, is it a bath? <laughs> In a sense it is. What he's, what he's telling us is that he wants God to cleanse him from sin's moral filth. Not like a bath, but a ritual bath to cleanse of guilt, sin's guilty stain, because that's what sin does. It leaves a stain on our soul. Now, scripture teaches that the human heart must be washed of sin's filth in a way that our best efforts to, to do better, now, maybe you've had someone tell you to do better, or you've told that to someone, law, 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 how can we do better when we keep on failing? You do better, you try to scrub yourself clean, but you can never scrub deep enough. The cleansing that, that washes away sin comes from the application of uh, the blood of a sacrifice. And that's the image that David is employing here with the purge me with hyssop. Hyssop, hyssop is, a, is, a, is a leafy, kind of hairy branch that is able to be saturated in liquid pretty well. And so the priests would, would dip the, the hyssop in the blood of the sacrifice, and they would sort of anoint the person with the hyssop, with the blood. And it was meant to convey that this sacrifice here, this, this animal, this, this, this blood that's been spilled on your behalf is atoning for you. It's covering your sin. That's how your sin is washed away. Now, verse 9, David prays to God, remove your gaze from my sinful record. Not only do we need to be cleansed from our, from our past, but we also need God to look away from what we've done. For God to no longer look upon our sins is to blot them out from his record, his record book. This is a, a beautiful picture. Kids, if you don't know what that means, it would be like if I got one of those pens at home that are leaky. You, you know what I'm talking about, the ones that we usually throw away? But you were to take one of those before you throw it in the trash can, and you were to try to write all over a sentence in a book. And what it would do is it would spill black or blue ink all over the page, it would make it so you can't read those words at all. David's saying, blot out my sins from your record book. It's almost as if you, you erase them and then tear out the page. They're gone. You can't read them anymore. This is our Savior. This is the one that God uh, is showing us who he is. This is who David is pleading on. Thank God he reminds us of our sins, that they're forgiven and our record is purged. What Psalm 51 is telling us is that if you cry out like this, 
and that you believe that it's actually true that God blots out sins, in other words, God has forgotten them, then that will set you free. And that's the freedom that, that David is after because you won't get stuck dwelling on your past sins and tormenting yourself by digging them all up again, even after you've repented of them. God's promise is, is if you cry out to him, blot out my iniquity, then he will actually remove your sins from his book and cast them as far away as the east is from the west. Hallelujah. Amen. Verse 11, still on the other hand, David says, stay with me by your Holy Spirit. Now this is really important because sometimes we think that all we need is for God to show up once and to, to, to offer the sacrifice of, of Jesus, to cover all sins, and we'll get to that um, in a few moments. And then as long as he's, that's covered, he can kind of go away and we can live our lives. No. We need God to not just show up once, but we need him to stay with us. As the king, David's praying here that God will not remove his spirit of anointing for kingship, just as he saw God remove his spirit from King Saul, his predecessor. The spirit of the Lord came upon King Saul, and he did some mighty works. But then Saul walked away from the Lord, was not loyal to him, was not faithful to him, uh, broke covenant with him. And what did God do? He removed that anointing of the Holy Spirit from Saul because of his sin. And David goes, I just did the same kind of thing. God, please don't remove your Holy Spirit from me. But if we can make David's words our own, and that's the reason why he wrote Psalm 51, for us to use it for ourselves, and if we can pray for God to not take his Holy Spirit from us, then it's saying something in addition to the whole Old Testament remove the anointing from the king. It's telling us that the role of the Spirit must be more than a kingly anointing. You see, the function of this psalm, as it shapes the repentance of an entire congregation, is to fashion our hearts so we see at the very deepest level our desperate need for the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we forget the third person of the Trinity, like, like he's not there, or, or all we need is Jesus. No, we need the triune God, the Father who promises salvation, the Son who produces it, and the Holy Spirit that applies it to us. And stays with us. Because remember, Jesus said, I will leave you, my disciples, but don't worry. I will send you another helper, an advocate, one who will be with you always in my stead. We need the Holy Spirit to make us holy, to keep us holy, so that we can stay in God's holy presence. In other words, you don't just need God to show up to accept you once and then leave the rest up to you. You need him to stay with you. Okay, let's look at the other hand now. Verses 8, 10, and 12. First hand was what? Oh God, please don't reject me. This is, oh God, please restore me. Verse 8, David prays, permit me joy in my brokenness. Now, I really love this because the world is broken, isn't it? Children die before their parents. Brothers Sisters pass away before we have a chance to really get to know them. Relationships die unreconciled. This world is a sad, sad place sometimes. It's broken. But we can still have joy in that brokenness. That's what David's praying for. The, the feeling of crushed bones 
It's akin to living under the weight of God's displeasure. But just as God can place that weight on a sinner in order to to awaken him so that he rises and goes to his father, God can also lift that weight, that weight of painful conviction, so that our soul is penetrated just as deeply, but with the joy that comes from the Lord. Jesus talked about how if he comes into him and if one who drinks from him, it will be like a wellspring of living water springing up from him, gently flowing, sometimes gushing out of your brokenness. Your problems will not be solved. Surely you know the story of David. His problems were not solved by his repenting, except that he was made one with his God again, which is the most important problem that we have. Verse 10 Renew me in a strong and pure heart. You see, David's recognizing that he has a sinful, broken heart that longs for the things of this world and the things of of impurity and sin, and he needs a new heart. He really does pray for a new heart here, not just a change of heart. He says, create in me a new heart. And the word there for create is the same one that's used in Genesis 1, when God spoke into nothing and the universe leapt into existence. David's saying, I don't just need an overhaul, I need a new heart. One that's so transformed that it's created anew. Because he knows that our natural inclinations in our fallen state is to please ourselves. And when sinners try to please themselves, and remember, we're born sinners, we're naturally wanting to please ourselves with forbidden pleasures. And Jesus said it's impossible to see the kingdom of God unless one is born again of the Spirit. That's another way of talking about how we need a new heart. And this is why we must, like David, cry to God for this pure heart and a right spirit within. Because we need to be more like Jesus and we need to feel the heart of Jesus and have the heart of Jesus. Before I have a chance to illustrate, bear with me one more time. We're on this side. God, please restore me. Verse 12. Keep me in the joy of my salvation. You kind of have to wonder how a guy like David, who can write this kind of stuff, got to the point where he could commit such a callous, premeditated, defiant sin. How did did he get there? Well, I wonder if, if he was starting to get kind of spiritually dull. You know what I'm talking about? when you kind of have that, that spiritual dryness, that, that those periods that come that they're the exact opposite of the mountaintop experiences, now you're down in the valley, and maybe it's not the valley of the shadow of death, but maybe it's the valley of boredom. Maybe it's the valley of, God's just not feeling that important to me or that close to me right now. Maybe it's the valley of, I got a lot of spare time on my hands, and uh, I'm, I'm interested in just kind of doing my own thing, just taking a break for a while. I think that's what happened to David. That's, that's how it started, by the way. He was not doing his job. He was not off with his, with his army in the spring when kings go off to war. He was at home as Joab was out with his army uh, taking on the, the Philistines and whoever it was that they were fighting at the time. And David, that's when his heart went astray. That condition of spiritual dullness left him vulnerable to temptation. And so in order to avoid disaster in the future, what does David do? He prays for the joy in his salvation. Now, why would he do that? I think because David knows 
as one who walks with God and who's been close to God so many times in his life, so many mountaintop experiences, even in the midst of brokenness, that to be a happy saint is to be a content saint who can resist the sin of coveting, which is at the root of all kinds of sins. If you are really repentant, then you'll want to regain that deep and abiding spiritual joy that comes with knowing that you're not rejected by God and that you've been restored by God. Let me give you an example. Um, I remember a time um, when I had messed up really big and I sinned against someone who I really cared about. And I let years go by before I apologized. The Holy Spirit was working on my heart and um, I came across a note um, just this a week or two ago. I was going through my encouragement file that I talked about at uh, Magiker's funeral, looking through all the notes that um, you all and others have sent to me, encouraging me um, as your pastor, as your friend. I keep all those, by the way. And I shed a little tear for the five that, that I found from Madge because she was always such an encourager. But I shed a lot of tears when I got to one at the very back of my file. And what it was was a printout of an email that a dear friend sent to me um, after I had emailed her asking for forgiveness and apologizing for how I had treated her, and she was offering gracious, sweet forgiveness. I told God I was not going to cry. <laughs> and I, those tears were of joy and relief and grief at the fact that I had actually been able to treat somebody that I cared about so bad. I needed God's forgiveness. I needed... I needed his restoration. And of course, I asked it from him first, and it was years later before I went and asked her. But she was gracious, and she gave it. And that's what repentance, the, the fruit of repentance, feels like. It's sweet, even in the bitterness. Now, I didn't have a Nathan at that point. It was the Holy Spirit mediating, uh, or immediately working on my heart. But sometimes God works through Nathans. Um, sometimes it's me as the preacher who is preaching out God's word, and I might say something, and you go, how did you know that? And I got to tell you, most of the time, I don't know anything. <laughs> God's using my words to drill them down into your heart, to press them down into your conscience, to prick it, so that his word read and expounded, illustrated and applied, will be applied to you by the Holy Spirit, saying, thou art the man. Other times, it's someone you know who you've sinned against, and maybe you don't even remember it or know it. And they come to you and they say, brother, sister, i got to share something with you. You did this, and if we want to be one in spirit again, then we need to work this out, and you need to make this right. Jesus talks about this uh, sort of thing in Matthew chapter 5. Let me read to you what he writes there in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if, or you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Okay, here's here's the, the payoff. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there, before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. 
Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, some of you might be thinking, aha, but Jesus is talking about if someone has something against you, not the, uh, the situation where you have something against another person. And uh, that's the way that our hearts work, isn't it? To, to get us out of something uncomfortable. I love what one commentator wrote about this. He says, it is no good supposing God will be pleased with your worship if your heart is full of bitterness against someone else. Among children of the kingdom, that's us, acceptable worship involves repairing relationships. And reconciliation with others flows from reconciliation with God. This, this verse, Matthew 5, 25, makes it plain that we are on the way to judgment. Those who spurn the mercy of the king will end up not in the kingdom, but in prison, according to what Jesus says. The good news is not to be trifled with. It is literally a matter of life and death. Jesus is teaching that this is not optional. To be living as a child of the king is to be reconciled with your brother and sister. Not so that you can hold on to, to bitterness and to um, perhaps say, I'm just not going to deal with this right now and, and withhold the grace of repentance from someone else. But to extend that offer and saying, we need to talk about this. This is what God's calling us to do. To be reconciled to one another because we are reconciled to God. And it leads to wonderful fruit. This is our third point, the fruit of godly repentance. I love the, the, the main one that David focuses on. The fruit grows when the Holy Spirit applies the gospel to your heart. And essentially, this is what he's saying. Oh God, I promise to evangelize sinners in spoken word and in song. That's verses 13 through 15. I will consecrate to you my contrite heart. In other words, I'll set it apart for you. I will be devoted to you. Verses 16 and 17. David's so overjoyed at the thought of God forgiving his sin that he vows to use his life from now on to help other sinners find the same forgiveness that he has found. When was the last time you, you, you watched or met someone who was a recent convert to Christ? Didn't you want to like attach yourself to them and kind of like follow them around because they were just exuding the grace of God and the gospel was coming out of their lips at every turn because they were so excited for the forgiveness that God had bestowed on them that they wanted to share it with everybody they met. That's what David wants again. After that period of spiritual dullness, he might just say, well, that was my youthful stage and that's when you kind of shoot up in, in spiritual puberty and now I'm mature. No, he wants to go back. He wants to get that spiritual joy again so that he can have that energy and that zeal to be able to share God's word with those who are just one step behind him. A forgiven sinner who knows how much he has been forgiven, how much mercy God has shown him, is prepared to be an evangelist. How can one who is forgiven so much be silent when so many need the same forgiveness? Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, number 185, uh, talks about how we are to, to make these vows to God in prayer. Psalm 51 is a prayer. Well, what's it say about prayer? We are to pray with an awful apprehension of the majesty of God 
and a deep sense of our own unworthiness, necessities, and sins, with penitent, thankful, and enlarged hearts, with understanding, faith, sincerity, fervency, love, and perseverance, waiting upon him with humble submission to his will. Now, it's one thing to say this is how our prayers ought to look, but it's another thing to say, God, how do I, how do I pray for that new heart that I, that I desire, that I need? Do you ever kind of stumble along in your prayers? I mean, maybe you're one of those folks who's so saturated in the Bible that when you pray, you naturally pray Bible-sounding prayers, and that sort of thing is eloquent for you, and it comes easy for you. Most of us are not like that. Most of us need help in our prayers. Kind of like when you, uh, when you go off-roading, uh, away from uh, the road of, the, of the, the Lord's Prayer and those kind of rote prayers that you normally default to. You know what I'm talking about? When you go off-roading in your prayer life, it can get more difficult. I quoted last time um, from Tim Keller's Psalms devotional, The Songs of Jesus. I want to quote from him again. Listen to his wise pastoral counsel. He says, What is the broken and contrite heart God wants so much? It is a heart that knows how little it deserves, yet how much it has received. To know only the first, that is, to know how little you deserve, is to be self-loathing. You fall into that, that trap of, oh my God, I am a worm, I don't deserve this, keep away from me, I'm hideous. But to know only the second, in other words, that we've received so much, is to be self-satisfied. Look at me, I've arrived. I get to fill up on all the blessings, then I get to come back next week for another fill up. Tim Keller says both kinds of hearts will be self-absorbed. David's talking instead about hearts that are broken by costly, free grace. Costly grace, but free grace. Knowing, how, knowing both how lost we are and how loved we are. That's the humility and boldness that comes with a broken and contrite heart that can come into God's presence and freely ask him as our Heavenly Father for anything according to his will. This gets us out of ourselves freeing us from the need to be constantly looking at ourselves. In verse 17, when our lips are opened, we do not speak of ourselves, but of God's praise. That's the end of the quote. So how do you pray? Well, you, you, you take that kind of sense that I don't deserve it, but God has loved me so, and you turn it back in your own words. You say, God, I know that I don't deserve to be forgiven. I know that I've really blown it. But Lord, I also know that you have promised to be merciful and you're gracious and you're compassionate and you're faithful to your covenant. And you say that you will never deny yourself. You can't do that. So don't forget me. Don't forget me. Which brings us to our last couple of verses. These last ones are David's prayer as the shepherd king on God's behalf of his covenant people, Israel. Look at what he's saying here. He's pleading with the Lord to do good to Zion, which is the city of God, and that right sacrifices that God delights in will resume in God's house. Now that should make you feel kind of confused based on what we've talked about so far. Remember our, our opening dilemma? How can God be just and merciful at the same time? And David's hole that he's fallen into, knowing that there's no prescribed sacrifice that he can go out, get out of his backyard 
to his, his pen of, of bulls or goats and bring to God that's going to cover premeditated, willful, defiant sins. How can God be both just and merciful at the same time? He just said, look, verses 16 and 17, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. And then in verse 19, then bulls will be sacrificed. Well, which is it? Which is the sacrifice that God delights in? This is where Psalm 51 reveals the gospel, brothers and sisters. David knew that there was no sacrifice that he could bring, a blood sacrifice, to atone for his sins. But he also knew this. He knew that in the law there was one day a year where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and bring not only a sacrifice for his own sins and for the sins of his household, but the sins that would cover the whole people of God. And God on that day would be the one who would provide the sacrifice. The Day of Atonement, it was called. So David and the Old Testament people of God recognized that they needed a high priest who would bring the perfect and the final sacrifice that would cover their big, premeditated, defiant sins because nothing else would cover them. Not even their repentance. Repentance is a gift of God's grace, but it is not atoning. We need a blood sacrifice. And as those Old Testament saints that David is, is pointing us to look to the Day of Atonement, they looked to what the Day of Atonement symbolized and pointed to, that there would be a perfect high priest who would bring the perfect and final sacrifice to atone for our sins so that our repentance can actually be received by a just God and be responded to in forgiveness by a merciful God. And who is that, that, that perfect high priest? Hebrews again. The book of Hebrews reveals who he is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus Christ who offers his own body and his own blood on the cross to atone for repentant sinners. Jesus provides the sacrifice. Jesus performs the sacrifice. Jesus is the sacrifice. And through his sacrifice, God, is, in his good pleasure, does good to his people. So how can you be certain that all the blessings of Jesus' right sacrifice are applied to you? Well, put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, the Savior of sinners, the high priest of God, and continue to trust him for daily repentance, daily forgiveness, and daily holiness. Because Jesus is your high priest, and he's your right sacrifice, and he's all you need. Let's pray. Father, we have been summoned into your presence and been confronted um, with um, all of our, our frailties, all of our limitations, all the ways we come up short, all of our brokenness, all of our sin. And Lord, you've showed us how we are to repent. You've showed us that we need a new heart, that we need a new record, we need to be washed clean, and we need a new life, we need holiness. And Lord, you provide all of these saving solutions because you are a God who loves us and promises salvation when we cannot save ourselves. Help us, Lord, to use Psalm 51 in our own corporate prayers, in our own private prayers 
as we seek um, godly repentance, uh, when we are um, needing forgiveness, not just from the, the small and the common sins that we still do absolutely need forgiveness of, but especially of those that come upon us and threaten to wipe us out. Lord, thank you, Lord, that you will not wipe us out, but you'll blot out our sins. And for that promise and for that certainty that's accomplished through the blood of Jesus, we thank you and praise you in his name. Amen.